Hey everybody, my name is Sarah Kreger. I am an emergency physician and intensivist at UCLA, and this is the ICU EDU podcast. Today we're going to talk about our physiologic differential diagnosis based on our bedside echocardiography. This is what I like to think of as the physiology first, ultrasound second approach, because it's always seemed a little weird to me that we teach ultrasound, as in how to obtain the images, before we teach the physiology underlying said images. Um, I think that, you know, teaching ultrasound and how to obtain the images early on and first is very reasonable if we're talking about something like gallbladder ultrasound, where gallbladder present, check, wall thickening, check. There's not a lot of physiology behind whether somebody has gallstones. But when we're talking about bedside assessment cardiovascular, and shock and bedside echocardiography, this is a whole different ballgame. And just like any other test, we need to take our echo in context. Our echo is a tool to generate new hypotheses about what's happening with my patient and why, and to provide supporting or refuting data for my current hypothesis about the patient. But that presupposes that I am able to generate a thoughtful physiologic hypothesis about said patient. And I think we get in trouble here when we hang our diagnostic hat on isolated echo findings. This is when we can really do harm to our patient. And I would say especially if you are not an expert ultrasonographer, as I really am not, I would say I'm a mediocre ultrasonographer, especially then, you really need to have a solid physiologic context in order to make sure you're not doing harm to your patients by misinterpreting what you're seeing. So let's talk about the physiologic differential diagnosis for a handful of key ultrasound findings that we see all the time and that can also do harm to patients if we don't interpret them with the proper physiologic differential diagnosis in mind. And this all happens, of course, in the clinical context of the patient, the context of all of their other data, all their other labs and studies and imaging, and for the purposes of this, most importantly, in the context of their overall pattern of our ultrasound findings taken collectively. So we're going to start with assessment of the IVC. I'm not going to take too much of a deep dive into the details of IVC ultrasound because this is sort of a huge can of worms. Um, I do have to say that one of my pet peeves is when people will sort of go on a rant or tell you how useless CVP is and then in the next sentence report their IVC ultrasound findings. It turns out that they're kind of measuring the same thing. And just like CVP, IVC ultrasound can actually give you some very useful information, but only if you interpret it thoughtfully in the appropriate context. Now, firstly, the IVC, just like CVP, gives you much more useful information about the right ventricle versus the left ventricle. Because IVC is telling you something directly about the right ventricle. It's connected literally directly to the right ventricle. Whereas there's a lot of steps in between your IVC and your left ventricle. And so it's really difficult to extrapolate things like fluid responsiveness based on IVC, as in if your left ventricle is given more preload, will you give you more blood pressure? Now, that's very difficult to determine solely based on IVC because there's not as direct of a connection. But that being said, it's not that it's a useless number. You just got to think about it a little bit. So the major context you need to use to interpret your IVC is the context of the lungs. So to the extent that IVC ultrasound does give us useful information, it probably does so in terms of respiratory variation as opposed to just measuring the size of it. 
So respiratory variation is what I really use when I'm trying to assess IVC ultrasound. But because of that, it's important to do this in the context of the patient's respiratory status. For example, if your patient has increased work of breathing, they're breathing really hard, they're using accessory muscles, that can give you a false positive for IVC respiratory variation presence. On the other hand, if you have a patient who's intubated on a mechanical ventilator, now this is a very different story because now we are on positive pressure ventilation. And what we're looking for in terms of respiratory variation changes, both in terms of magnitude and direction. The inspiratory phase is no longer going to cause collapse on positive pressure ventilation. In addition, when we're looking at respiratory variation in a spontaneously breathing patient in the IVC, we're talking about things on the order of 50%. When we're talking about respiratory variation for IVC in a patient who's on a mechanical ventilator, we're talking about much more subtle respiratory variation that you probably can't eyeball, that you probably actually have to put it on M mode and actually measure. Because now we're talking about more like 15%, maybe 20%, and I can't necessarily eyeball that. So often when you have an intubated patient on positive pressure ventilation, that can sometimes give you a false negative for respiratory variation if you're just eyeballing it. And lastly, if your patient is on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation like BiPAP or CPAP, all bets are off. And I have no idea what the IVC means in these patients. Why? Because you have this combination of one, they're getting some form of positive pressure ventilation. And so that could give you a false negative for respiratory variation to some extent. But at the same time, who are the patients we normally put on BiPAP or CPAP? The patients who have increased work of breathing. So that could give you a false negative for, or a false positive for respiratory variation. So I have no idea how to interpret IVC ultrasound in patients on BiPAP. So I just usually ignore it in those patients. Secondary consideration is that you also have to interpret your IVC in your abdominal pressure context because elevated abdominal pressures can give you a false positive for IVC respiratory variation. When are you going to see that? Patients who have significant ascites. I mean, the most obvious time is if they actually truly have abdominal compartment syndrome, but even some of the acute abdominal catastrophes or just patients with an acute surgical abdomen for any reason can give you elevated pressures in the abdomen, which can give you a false positive for IVC respiratory variation. Now, understanding the context for IVC respiratory variation and false positives and false negatives is particularly important in the sickest patients. Why? Because those patients are the ones who are most likely to have things like increased work of breathing, end up intubated, and so forth and so on. Now let's talk about the bedside ultrasound finding of a, quote, hyperdynamic and or, quote, underfilled left ventricle. This is one of the findings that, if failed to interpret it properly, can really cause us to do harm to our patients. So this is what you need to remember. When we see that hyperdynamic, underfilled LV on bedside ultrasound, our first impulse is, aha, that must mean that the patient needs fluids. Often, most often, it does. But sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't, giving fluids can really harm this patient. So let's talk about the differential diagnosis, the physiologic differential diagnosis for a left ventricle that looks hyperdynamic and or underfilled. And there's two real major categories that I like to think about here. 
Category one is a preload problem where the LV is just not being delivered enough volume that it can work with versus a afterload problem where the LV is just not pushing against any resistance. So it looks fantastic in the way that like if I am lifting a really heavy looking weight, but it's actually made of foam, it's not that hard to lift, even though, you know, normally it'd be really heavy. All right. So let's start actually talking about the preload problems. So this is when the LV is not being given enough volume to work with. Now, the most common scenario here is the one that we're all familiar with, the scenario of hypovolemia, either because of direct volume loss, maybe the patient's bleeding to death, maybe they're having massive diarrhea, or maybe they're just third spacing because they have horrible pancreatitis. And the ultrasound pattern that you're going to see here is, yes, your LV is going to be hyperdynamic, but your right ventricle should also be hyperdynamic. You shouldn't see B lines, and your IVC, you should see some respiratory variation here. That is the pattern you're going to see if that hyperdynamic left ventricle is due to hypovolemia. But do not forget that there is a very important structure between the venous return to the heart and the left ventricle, and it's called the right ventricle. Because keep in mind, the left ventricle can only work with as much blood as the right ventricle hands to it. It's like if you're in an assembly line and the person before you is not doing their job. So this second clinical scenario, when the left ventricle looks hyperdynamic and underfilled, is that the RV is not delivering. Now, when this happens clinically is RV failure, secondary to either pressure or volume overload. And the RV cannot get that volume to the LV. And you're going to see a hyperdynamic LV because it doesn't have any volume to work with, but the rest of the ultrasound pattern here should look different. So if you see a hyperdynamic left ventricle, but your right ventricle is large, it's maybe volume overloaded, you might see some septal flattening if it's pressure overloaded or both, and you might see some decreased RV systolic function. Do a TAPSI if you can. You're also going to see minimal IVC respiratory variation. Again, can see a false positive there if breathing hard, but you should see minimal IVC respiratory variation in theory. You're also not going to see B lines because the RV doesn't back up into the lungs. It backs up into the abdomen. And as such, sometimes you can even see some ascites if you have volume overloaded RV. So that is possibility number two. Preload problem number two is that the RV is not delivering. And in that case, you should see the LV hyperdynamic, but in a very different pattern with the rest of your ultrasound findings. Now, what about the, quote, afterload problems with a hyperdynamic LV? So this is when the LV looks fantastic, it looks hyperdynamic because it's not pushing against any resistance. It's really easy. So there's two major clinical scenarios. You see this one. The more common is low SVR, low systemic vascular resistance. So this is the clinical scenario when you have distributive shock or vasoplegia. Now, you often get a sort of double insult here, because if you have profound distributive shock or vasoplegia, it's not just that the left ventricle is not pushing against anything. That vasodilation also means that you've shifted some of your stressed volume to unstressed volume, leading to decreased venous return and functional hypovolemia. So patients with a really low SVR, distributive shock, the LV is going to look amazing. It's going to look hyperdynamic. And the ultrasound pattern you're going to see here. Here, your RV is going to be small. It should be squeezing pretty good. You shouldn't see B lines on your lungs. And you often do see IVC respiratory variation. Now, the catch here is that if you see this pattern, your LV is hyperdynamic and it's due to poor SVR, to vasoplegia, 
then you do something like start norepinephrine. And then you go back and you reassess that left ventricle and you're like, oh, well, maybe now the patient's going into cardiogenic shock or maybe now they've developed sepsis-induced cardiomyopathy and maybe they have, or maybe the LV now just looks worse because now it's actually having to push against some resistance. It'd be like if I'm lifting my foam weights, I make it look really easy. Then you replace them with actual heavy weights. It's not that I've gotten weaker. It's that the weight I'm lifting is heavier. And that's what happens then. So again, you can't misinterpret that either. There's a second, much less common, but very clinically significant scenario of afterload problems that the LV looks hyperdynamic. And this is what I like to call the pop-off valve. So if you have a patient with mitral regurgitation or aortic regurgitation, aortic insufficiency, the LV is going to look amazing. It's going to look super hyperdynamic. Why? Because it has a pop-off valve, right? It, you know, is pushing against the resistance on one end, but it has a pop-off valve on the other end. And so it's going to look fantastic. But the overall ultrasound pattern that you're going to see when you have a hyperdynamic LV due to a pop-off valve issue, that is a different ultrasound pattern. Here you're going to see LV looking great, super hyperdynamic, but a large left atria. You should start seeing some B lines and you're going to see minimal IVC respiratory variation as everything backs up all the way over to the venous side of the circulation. Now, fortunately, you have something called color Doppler. And even if you're not fantastic at ultrasound, if somebody is having clinically significant MR or aortic insufficiency, then often you can see this, even if you're not fantastic at color Doppler. So that will help you. But again, you have to think about that clinical scenario if you're not routinely looking at the valves on every bedside echo. So that is for the left ventricle. When we see a left ventricle that's hyperdynamic and underfilled, it could be a preload problem either because of true hypovolemia or the RV not delivering, or it could be an afterload problem where either you have low SVR or a pop-off valve where the LV looks good only because it's not having to push against anything. Now, what about the clinical scenario where you see what looks like perfectly normal left ventricular systolic function, but you are seeing beelines in the lungs. How do you reconcile this? Well, the most common and most important cause of something like this is HEFPEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, previously known as diastolic heart failure. So the reason that we really are pushing the idea of HEFPEF, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, is to get people to wrap their heads around the fact that just because you have decent systolic function doesn't mean you can't have heart failure. When do I think about HEFPEF? I think about this in a couple clinical scenarios, or really a couple of sort of risk factor categories. I think about it in patients who have obesity, atrial fibrillation, poorly controlled hypertension, or a history of aortic stenosis. And just in general, it's more likely in elderly patients, particularly in elderly patients who have one of those four things. Now, what is the ultrasound pattern you're going to see in these patients? Well, their ejection fraction is going to look perfectly normal. But you might see a thick-walled left ventricle. You'll more often see maybe a larger-looking left atrium, especially in patients with atrial fibrillation. 
And then you're going to start seeing other evidence of volume overload. You're going to see beelines on lung ultrasound, and often you're going to see minimal IVC respiratory variation. Although again, these patients, because they're coming in in pulmonary edema, are often working really hard to breathe. So again, take that IVC with a grain of salt. But that is the ultrasound pattern that we're going to see with HEFPEF. And just because you have good systolic function doesn't mean the patient's not in heart failure. Now, you can see a similar scenario with normal-looking left ventricular function and B-lines in just straight-up volume overload, right? So if you just have your renal failure patient who's missed dialysis for the last week and a half, then you can see a very similar pattern on ultrasound. But they're not in heart failure. They're just total body massively volume overloaded. The last clinical scenario where you're often going to see normal LV function and a bunch of pulmonary beelines is simply when the patients don't have anything wrong with their heart, they have some kind of lung problem. So multifocal pneumonia, ARDS, interstitial lung disease are all going to give you diffuse beelines, but having nothing to do with the patient's hemodynamics. All right, last what about when you see, quote, normal RV function per your eyeball test? So if somebody has obviously abnormal RV function, like a huge dilated RV with really poor squeeze and an obvious D sign, okay, that's easy. We're not usually going to miss that. But I would caution eyeballing the RV in the same way that we eyeball the LV. You know, we actually know that people are pretty good at just glancing at the LV and looking at the systolic function and sort of being like, oh, yeah, like I'm kind of estimating hyperdynamic, normal, moderately depressed, severely depressed. That's a reasonable thing to do with the left ventricle, not so much with the right ventricle. Like all things right ventricle related, it's more persnickety than the left ventricle. So. What if we see, firstly, an RV that's just straight up hyperdynamic? What does that mean? Well, most commonly, that is going to mean that you may have some hypovolemia. And the pattern you're going to see with a hypovolemic hyperdynamic right ventricle is a small right atrium and a bunch of IVC respiratory variation. And so that is the most common reason that your RV is going to be hyperdynamic. But there's a very important thing you can't forget. The RV also has a pop-off valve. In the case of the LV, your pop-off valves are the aortic valve and your mitral valve. But in the case of the RV, of course, it's your tricuspid valve. So if you have a patient with bad tricuspid regurgitation, let's say they have endocarditis and acute wide-open tricuspid regurgitation, your RV squeeze is going to look fantastic. Why? Because it's not squeezing against any resistance. It's like squeezing one of those frosting tubes, except the frosting is popping out both ends, right? So your RV could look hyperdynamic because you're having profound tricuspid regurg. Now, if that is the case, if that's why your RV is hyperdynamic, the pattern is going to be different. You might see a large right atrium, minimal IVC respiratory variation. But again, it's important to note that the RV doesn't back up into the lungs, so you're probably also seeing minimal beelines. But keep in the back of your mind, that's one possibility if your RV is hyperdynamic. And then you might see more subtle things with a pressure overloaded versus volume overloaded RV. You know, the RV doesn't have to be massive and dilated and look obviously down to have a primary right ventricle problem causing your shock. So your pressure overloaded right ventricle. Often you see this in the patients with some degree of chronic pulmonary hypertension. And these patients have, as one of my old attendings from fellowship used to call it, a, quote, Olympic trained RV. So often these right ventricles will have a thicker RV free 
wall. But you might see some septal flattening during systole because they're pressure overloaded. Now, their IV might be dilated, but it might not. And their systolic function might be okay because it's an Olympic-trained RV. It can push against high pressures, but that doesn't mean you don't have an RV problem. If you have a volume overloaded RV, now you should see a pretty large RV and you should see diastolic septic flattening. But again, you're probably not going to see B lines and your respiratory variation for your IVC in both a pressure or volume overloaded RV, you should have relatively minimal. So that is a couple of caveats and a couple of cautions about how you're interpreting your right ventricular sort of eyeballs. Okay. You got to be a little bit more thoughtful about it. So, in conclusion, when you're looking at your bedside echo, it's really important to interpret your findings, not just in the context of the clinical scenario of your patient and all their other studies and labs, but in the context of your other echo findings, in the background, keeping in mind your differential diagnosis physiologically for those findings. Thanks for listening.